Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason, and I uh, have a guest I want to get to very, very quickly, but we have an event tomorrow that I want you to be aware of, uh, John Noyes. He will premiere a new video on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube tomorrow, Wednesday, May 10th at 12 p.m. PST. It's called To the Point Live, and he's going to be talking about Christianity and the arts, especially the importance of telling stories. So I wanted to get that out right here at the beginning of this show, because I wait till next show. It will be too late uh, for you to catch that. So that's uh, John Noyes, To the Point Live, and talking about uh, Christianity, the arts, especially uh, telling stories. I This is a brand new area for me. I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. He does a lot of thinking about these kinds of things. Uh, just wanted to let you know. There's more stuff I'll, I'll talk about next hour, but I, uh, I want want to chat a little bit about the latest developments uh, with the leak of Justice Alioto's brief regarding uh, the decision before the Supreme Court that could have a decisive effect on the, le- the, the legitimacy. I mean, what I mean by that is the constitutional legitimacy of Roe v. Wade. And my guest right now, Megan Allman, uh, with uh, Scott Klusendorf over at LTI, Life Training Institute, and also with uh, with uh, Summit right now, working there with her husband, Tripp. And Megan, I want to say long time no see, but I, I, it hasn't been a long time. It's been like two weeks since we saw each other. And I don't see you right now. I can only hear you on the thing, but I'm glad to have you on board. I am so glad to be with you, Greg. Yes, just a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and too bad we can't have your face there because it's nice to chat with you personally, but we've had some difficulties getting rolling here on that. So um, I, I, I I, figured we're stressing about getting you up, and I realized, hey, I went three decades just talking on the phone <laughs> with people like you right now. So it's great to have you on board. You did a magnificent job for us in the entire series of reality this last year, which ended just a couple of weeks ago in Georgia. And your focus for your main stage event was the abortion issue, which is one of your your specialties. You've been speaking on this for years and years and years under Scott Klusendorf's tutelage over there at LTI. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about this whole thing. We chatted about it on the show uh, a week or so ago, maybe last week, when all of this news hit because of the uh, the leak by Politico regarding this brief. Um, I wonder if you could first take a few moments and just bring our listeners up to speed on the general issue that we're facing. And then maybe we can, I mean, that, that broke last week. So th- those who haven't been listening to the news understand what issue we've been facing uh, with this. And then we can go into more detail about what's been happening most recently. Well, sure. Um, well, the background of it is that there was a very important case that has come up um, to the Supreme Court from Mississippi called this Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this case, the reason it is so significant is that because it is a direct attack on Roe v. Wade, which has kind of um, solidified, so to speak, abortion precedent in our nation since 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, Roe v. Wade, of course, sets the, the, the time when abortion can be restricted um, well, well, there's more to it than that, but Roe v. Wade is concerned with viability. That's the key word with all that's going on. Can a state restrict abortion prior to viability? Um, now, Roe v. Wade, by default, allows abortion on demand because of the other cases that were passed down with it and because of the way that it words things like um, 
abortion can only be restricted in matters um, where it is a threat to the mother's life or to mm-hmm. the woman's health. And of mm-hmm. course, health was defined so broadly in Doe versus Bolton, also right. passed at the same time, that it, it enabled abortion on demand. But mm-hmm. what we have here is Mississippi saying, we would like to restrict abortion after 15 weeks. Now, 15 weeks is prior to viability as it stands right now in our nation. Um, and so it is a direct attack on Roe. Now, the Supreme mm-hmm. Court is scheduled to decide on this, of course, in June. But what's happened in the last week, as you guys noted on the last episode, is that there was a leak of the majority opinion draft that Justice Alito wrote. Um, and this leak has, uh, possibly as planned by the person who leaked it, caused quite the media frenzy uh, mm-hmm. because it indicates if it holds, um, this is not the final decision, but as a draft, it indicates that Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade and uh Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the two cases that kind of set the abortion precedent right now will be overturned. Mm -hmm. By the way, this um, this process, obviously, these cases have come up months ago. They were argued and deliberated before the court. And then they have this long period of time where they go over a whole host of cases and then characteristically make their announcements in June. So um, it isn't, uh, it, it all comes out at once, and this announcement was supposed to come out. But um, since in many cases these have been adjudicated privately by the court, these individual cases, it's not unusual for one justice who represents the majority opinion to write a brief um, beginning to construct the statement that they would deliver in June and what happened here with the leak at Politico, um, that they jumped the gun. Now, um, my understanding is this, um, Megan, has never, ever happened before in the history of the court that a, a preemptive leak has um, has given some indication of what the court was going to decide June when it's supposed to come public. Is that right? Um, you know what, Greg? I'm not entirely sure that that's right. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there have been a couple of instances, but they were long ago. And I was actually reading an article at First Things that was talking about some past instances, but I'm not aware of one this big if, yeah. if, if that's fair to say. Yeah, my concern, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm concerned with about this. And yeah. one of them is, when I first heard about this, a friend sent me a note, uh, the news broke. And then, of course, the decision itself is a decision that pro-life, if this goes through, and it's the brief accurately represents the majority opinion here, oh. that will be announced officially in June. Well, that's good news for pro-lifers, because it uh, it clarifies, and, and we can talk about this in a little bit, I want to get into some of this, it clarifies what the, what the Constitution uh, does or does not allow as a constitutional document, and that what it clarifies is that there is no constitutional right to abortion, and uh, therefore it would be, it would fall to the states. Now, that's good news for us in the sense that it leaves open restrictions to abortion and the killing of unborn children in the states. But I'm concerned. I was not happy about what happened, even though the news is good news for us. The way the news was communicated, in my view, undermines the integrity of the judicial process of SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, and does not bode well for keeping the court apolitical. Your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that, of course, these decisions, the, the privilege is part of what the court has to keep things private. These briefs are meant to be circulated only among the justices so that they have an opportunity to read carefully, to weigh their decisions. These are, after all, weighty matters. Mm-hmm. Um and so when something like this happens, it is um, it is a threat and, and, a, and a matter of integrity that is just egregious. Mm-hmm. Well, this also goes to this broader issue of politicizing the court itself. And part of the concern that many people have, regardless of their view of the abortion itself, was that in 1973, we had activist judges that were actually de facto legislating from the bench when that's not their job. That job of legislation comes from Congress and the Senate and the executive branch, not from the judicial branch. But this is part of what has happened as the court has become increasingly political uh, over the years, the almost 50 years since since Roe versus, versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, these two cases that kind of get packaged together to accomplish or allow for abortion on demand up until the birth of the child. So that that this is what I mean, to me, what's at stake here is is the the rule of law, Megan. It's whether or not um the Constitution is going to be allowed to speak as the founding legal document uh, to the affairs of Congress, who is the one in position of passing these laws. It's supposed to adjudicate on those those laws. And instead, it seemed to me almost 50 years ago, stepped out of its purview and uh, legislated from the bench. And now we've seen a whole bunch of other things that seem like the same kind of trend. Yes, yes. In 1973, essentially, our voices were taken from us on this issue. Um, So contrary to what's being just thrown around in social media and whatnot, if Roe and Casey are overturned, it will not end abortion, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, but it will allow really the pro-life community and everyone who is a voting age to have a say at a local level, um, which is a powerful thing. That just means we get busier, Greg. That's what that means. Yeah, yeah. But additionally to what, you know, to the point of what's going on right now. Um, right. Just same kind of trend. But if if the person who leaked the document intended to do so in order to intimidate any of the justices, which is suspected, but no, I can't prove that at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but if that is the case, then what we have is the idea that somehow intimidation can sway law and opinion rather than something fixed like the Constitution or like natural rights. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not unlike the left to move like this. And we've tracked this for a long time. And um, I don't want to get in a certain sense unnecessarily political. But and so I'm not going to talk about parties here, but we do have a contingent in our culture, very, very left of center that we have seen in, in the last years, especially in the last two years, when things do not go their way, what they do is they resort to force, to violence, to intimidation, to smearing instead of to argument. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, you know, argument ought to be the thing that holds sway if we're a people who believe in the rule of law. Um, what 
in this last week, have you been following the what the demonstrations, the public, um, the public uh, response, negative response from the left? The, the the characteristically conservatives don't riot. Okay, they just don't block bridges and they don't burn things down. They don't loot. That's not our way. It's the way of the left. Um, what has happened, say, in the last week? Uh, just in general, in terms of public response that you know of since this uh, this leak has been made public? Well, the, the media firestorm has been obvious to anyone who's paying attention. So there's mm-hmm. that. And there has been coverage of of these protests and these marches. And um, even one march I saw covered, gosh, it was the last couple of days to from the Washington, D.C. to one of the justices' homes to protest outside of their home. Oh, um, but then I'm also seeing, uh, you know, the stories that aren't being told at a popular level from friends on social media who have taken photographs of, um, you know, religious institutions or uh, pro-life uh, buildings, I guess you could say, that have been mm-hmm. attacked by protesters um, in mm-hmm. violent ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and certainly just the, the character attacks are coming out on on social media, um, these different memes and things like that is every time I see them come up, my daughter and I were talking today about them. And, you know, she's um, learned from from me and, and certainly has learned from Scott over the years. And you know, she's looking at these and going, Mom, that's just name calling or mm-hmm. Mom, that's assuming that the unborn isn't human. That's not even doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it I, I guess it's not unexpected given what's come out in the leak. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think we, we maybe expected this to happen a little bit later, not right now. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And if it happened later, it would uh, be a fait complete regarding the Supreme court. It's a done deal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And people can complain all they want. It isn't going to make a decision, um, a difference in the decision that was already delivered by the court, which is the way it's supposed to happen. Now it's a draft. It isn't official till it's announced in, in, uh, in June. And when you have people, congregating somewhere in Washington to express their discontent, fine, let them do that. That's a constitutional right. However, when they gather in front of a justice's private residence, that is intimidation. So my question is, why is it? Well, maybe they have. Has, Has there been any governmental, local governmental response in the community to clear these people out and keep them from harassing the justices who are trying to do their job. Yeah, that um, I I can't answer in full. I do have a friend on the ground in D.C. right now who's covering some of this, and she does commend the local police for doing an excellent job. Oh, well, that's good. It is very good, and I appreciate um, those men and women who are serving in that way very much. Yeah, but it's interesting, though, when there is, uh, you mentioned uh, what looks like intimidation on institutions that are pro-life. When any nasty thing happens to an abortion clinic, which is very, very rare, considering the amount of time, 50 years, and what pro-lifers understand to be at stake, which is the is the taking of the life of tens of thousands and over the years, millions upon millions of unborn children. It's amazing how little violence there has been. But when that's happened, pro-life organizations to an organization have stood up and condemned this. Now the shoe's on the other foot. And now you've got pro-abortion minded people that are intimidating pro-life organizations. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So, because <laughs> I, I don't expect all these other, I don't expect Planned Parenthood to step up and say, you, you shouldn't be doing that, you know, kind of thing. It's like a radical double standard. It, it is, it is. And then even, you know, added to that is the idea that many, as a generality, I think that the pro-abortion camp is also, you know, talking about pro-lifers as not being consistent in their views, as not this whole life view. They would say that they are more pro-life in that they care about the lives of others who are facing injustice, um, whereas the pro-life movement does focus exclusively on abortion and on ending abortion. Okay, um, so it is an interesting, inconsistent thing. I know this is this is to, this is just a distraction, and I hope that thoughtful yeah. people can see around this. If you are fighting to end slavery, but you are not feeding at the soup kitchen in New York City at the same time, it doesn't disqualify your fight against slavery. Everybody can't do everything, yeah. and the fact is. Uh, I'm, you know, for uh, I'm in churches all over the country all the time. And every church that I'm in has some kind of program helping the others, this uh, other people that are less fortunate. I mean, this complaint that pro-lifers don't care about anything else is just is a is a libel. It's a canard um, that is just not true. And by the way, even if it were the case, right, even if that's all they cared about was saving the life of innocent human beings, that were defenseless and being destroyed in mass, I think that would be just fine, even if they weren't spending time with the homeless or or any other disenfranchised group. I mean, please. That's right. Even if the character attacks were true, you know, that when, and I don't think that they are. I think that mm-hmm. pro-life people, because of their more consistent ethic for those who are thoughtful about it, are just that, more consistent. But even if the character attacks are true, you know, Scott would say, how does that give us permission to intentionally kill innocent human beings? So the, the the coalition, as I understand it, would be Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Alito, of course, who wrote the his writing the brief, wrote the brief, Thomas and Barrett. Um, that's five. That's a majority. Roberts isn't even in there, and I don't. Who knows what he's going to do because he's the so-called Kurt, the conservative who doesn't <laughs> vote. Cons- I don't know. We're just going to set that aside. But this is a majority right here. So, uh, do you have any sense at all? from watching what's going on that any of the things that are being done could sway any of those justices in their conviction about whatever their decision is regarding uh, the the Roe versus Wade case, the Dobbs case that they're considering. Um, I, I don't have a good sense about that, Greg, but I hope not. And in fact, mm-hmm. my prayers, my thoughts are with them, with their families, um, with their their teams and their offices um, as they are moving toward uh, this very important decision and the others that they are working to make um, in this year. That's um, right. Yeah. It, I, my understanding is that the Alito's draft wasn't the only leaked document, but that uh, Justice Roberts, one of his was as well. And um, if I understand Hmm. correctly, he's trying to take a middle road approach, which is really impossible on this. That's Um, right. So, And why, why, by the way, this, this troubles me. I know that Roberts 
has positioned himself as the Kennedy swing vote kind of thing, you know, where Kennedy used to be. And now and he wants to be the 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 middle of the road guy. It seems to me if you're a justice of the Supreme Court, especially in his case, the chief justice, your first allegiance isn't to peacemaking and be a middle of the road guy, but to be a thoroughly constitutional guy. That makes sense. That does make sense. And given that the law does rest on moral standards, you know, when it comes to abortion and keeping the main thing the main thing, Greg, it either takes the life of an, of a, of an innocent human being or it doesn't. Right. Um, there's not a middle of the road anywhere to be found there. <laughs> That's right. I, I've, you and I have both have countenanced so-called modified pro-choice Uh, arguments. This is the one that's kind of in the middle. And it turns out every single one of those modified middle of the road pro-choice approaches are all fully pro-choice. The rhetoric may be modified. The posture may be modified. The view turns out not to be modified in the slightest. It's always allowing abortion essentially on demand for the full nine months of pregnancy. And that's the issue. It's kind of like being half pregnant, which is actually now I think about it as a bad pun, considering what we're talking about here. So I have um, I, I w- I've been thinking about this just, you know, obviously the last few week, well, week or so until when this first broke. And if I were someone who was actually pro-abortion, Mm-hmm. Um, I would not approve a Roe v. Wade. Now, it 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 pitches in my direction in terms of my view, but it pitches that way in my view for the wrong reason, mm-hmm. because we are all protected by a, um, a how can I say this a a a blind a blind justice balance of justice right there. Remember, she's blindfolded Mm -hmm. so that the rule of law is established in this country. When that blindfold of justice is removed and all of a sudden it is all politics, now the standard of law is removed. And even if at that point it pitches in my direction as a if I were a pro-choicer and Roe v. Wade, I would still be vulnerable next time it pitched in a different direction if justice isn't blind and it is staying to the rule of law. The 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 rule of law protects us all, you know, and um, regardless of what side we're on. And uh, 50, 50, 48 years ago, it was the pro-lifers ox who got gored. And now it's the pro-choicers who think their ox is getting gored, but they're just potentially losing a so-called right that was never in the Constitution to begin with. Yes. We just want to put the blinds back, blinders back on justice and let the rule of law stand. Yes, absolutely. And the, you know, when you read the original um, majority opinion from Roe versus Wade, uh, you don't, you're not alone in pretending to be the pro-choice person who would say this is terrible legislation. Um, mm-hmm. There are many pro-choice scholars who would say that. Um, you know, if, if not for the other reasons, uh, such as the the appeal to the right to privacy, which was kind of one that was cobbled together from from the Bill of Rights, it it wasn't there in such a way as it was used in first Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, and then extended to allow for abortion in Roe versus mm-hmm. Wade. 
um, you know, when, when Harry Blackman wrote that majority opinion, um, he said some interesting things that were downright contradictory. You know, mm. He talked about the right of the abortion depending on the status of the unborn, which is why, by the way, we've seen this flurry of heartbeat bills um, in the more conservative states that are trying to establish personhood of the unborn within the framework of Roe as an attempt mm. to um, defeat it. Um, but he said within the within the majority opinion, Justice Blackman, that if the personhood of the unborn could be established, we would have to overturn this law. But he went mm. on to say uh, it, at the same time that the court isn't going to try and make a guess on when life begins because there's no consensus on that. Um, so essentially, if I'm borrowing heavily from our mutual friend, Francis Beckwith here, um, right. when, when he talks about this, if he doesn't know when life begins, then by default, he doesn't know when the right to abortion begins. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, there it is. It was it was put into place and then extended, of course, with Doe versus Bolton and the wording of what health means such that we had abortion on demand in yeah. 1973. Well, I, I suspect when Blackman wrote about we don't know when life begins, I, I suspect that what he was talking of was not biological life, because yeah. this is pretty straightforward. Obviously, if it's, grow, obviously if it's growing, it's alive. That's the mm. problem. Uh, that's what distinguishes first, second, third trimester, the growth of the living, unborn uh, human being in, in that child's mother's womb, yeah. probably had in mind this vague notion of personhood, which, you know, when I started discussing this issue more publicly, uh, in fact, the first piece, lengthy piece I wrote was called Precious Unborn Human Persons. Mm -hmm. But I have since abandoned even my own use of personhood language. And the reason is, and you know this, but just for others that may not be thinking about it, um, I do not think that human beings are valuable because they reach some quality of existence or some instrumental um, uh, level of development that personhood is assigned to them. And the personhood is the thing that's really important. Personhood is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned, Megan. Uh, I think it, it, it has been that has been legal ledger domain, slate of hand that has allowed us to disqualify the rights of s- some members of the uh, the human family from being bona fide protected members of the human community. Uh, the fact is. It is human beings, not human persons, that all bear the image of God and that ought to be protected. And the minute we start pursuing this personhood avenue of justifying the legitimacy of any human being, we're just down a terrible slippery slope that has all kinds of other negative consequences that we have seen obtain in the last 50 years in many cases. Yeah, this is so true. And as you well know, Greg, you know, these instrumental um, things come in degrees, which is what creates the problem. Um, mm-hmm. you know, humanity is the one thing that doesn't come in degrees. You're either human or you're not. Right. And, you know, humans are human the moment that they come into existence. And the moment that we separate human from person, We've created all kinds of problems, as you pointed out. But one of those, just to really simplify the matter, is that essentially what we're saying, if that's the case, is that there are some human beings who are merely human and other human beings who've achieved this arbitrary status that we call personhood, which Mm -hmm. means that 
there are some human beings who matter more than other human beings. Right. And isn't that the underlying problem under all of the injustices that we see? That's that right. We uh, rightly yeah. call injustices. <laughs> that's, yes. Ethnic cleansing, for example, there's some people that don't have the right characteristics or qualities that others have that make them therefore inferior and can be victims of the injustice you referred to. Um, you know, this whole kerfuffle we've seen this last week about people complaining about the right to an abortion, hmm. a, a universal unrestrained constitutional right being taken away underscores a very important concept. And this is what I was kind of obliquely referring to earlier uh, related to people's ox being gored. The fact is, if the rights that we have are ones that can be created and given to us, Mm. they can also be denied and taken away from us. The rights that are secure are the ones that only God gives us, and that's the way our founders grounded the human rights that uh, underscore the Bill of Rights, for example, mm-hmm. all right, that can't be taken away because God has given us those rights, at least on their reasoning. But if if rights are just given by courts, well, the court that gives them can take them away, too. And then what is the grounds for moral complaint that the people who are now disabused of those rights can offer to justify uh, keeping those rights themselves. They are humanly made on their view, so they could be humanly unmade as well. Yeah. And speaking of those natural rights, the ones that God gives us and the court's job is to, or the law's job is to protect, you know, the right to life is foundational to all of them. That's right. And it's right there in the Constitution. And that, you know, well, here's something else that I have talked about before, but it bears repeating here. Um, and it was brought to mind when I read it tweet, a very bizarre tweet, but there was a line in the tweet and it had to do, it was about, you know, Thomas and Alito being the oldest on the bench right now. And what if somebody were to murder them so that the current president would have an opportunity to replace them? It was bizarre. And the guy who wrote it apologized for it and pulled it down. But I read I read the tweet that was saved by somebody else. But here's what he said here. Thomas and Alito are the two oldest right-wing Supreme Court judges. Okay, now notice this person reflecting on it could not, they, they, they could not keep, he could not keep himself from characterizing the justices as political pawns of a political side. Yeah. The fact is, whatever their political views happen to be, right or left, are not relevant to the question of adjudicating the Constitution. And um, this is something, Megan, that I have been concerned about when people talk about conservative justices. We don't mean politically conservative justices as if we want to just get our right-wing justices in there to use the power of the court um, for their own political ends, ideologically political ends. We want people who are constitutionally conservative. In other words, we want those people who will just adjudicate the Constitution and not make the whole process uh, a political one. And uh, that's what I mean by conservative justices. I don't mean by uh, an, an activist conservative in there, but this is the way people make Alito and this tweet 
tweet makes Thomas and Alito look as if they're activist judges. They're not just the opposite. That's right. And I agree with you, Greg. And I think that when these justices are in place and making decision, I want them tethered to a fixed point um, and not just making decisions willy nilly. That's that's the problem that we have right now. Um, Moral relativism, the idea that morality is not tethered to anything real or doesn't come from a real standard. Um, And that's one of the major hurdles, in fact, that we have in this whole conversation over abortion because it has been framed so subjectively. Yeah. And so politically, I I, um, and and of course, that's just a redundancy. It's subjectively politically. These are the same (laughs) kinds of things in this kind of discussion here. I know that some people have raised the question, well, now what other rights are going to fall as if the sky is falling? And it was interesting. I was talking to Amy about this and uh, she says no rights that are in the Constitution are going to fall. No, that's the whole point. But if you make up a right you can take that right away. And that's what happened in this particular case or what may be happening in this particular case. So do you know the date when the official Supreme Court uh, decision on the on this issue with Dobbs and uh, and the other things before the court uh, will, will be made public? I only know that the window uh, that I'm aware of is between June 20th and 30th. Oh, OK. So that's still a month and a half away. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, um, this it it's 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 a important thing you mentioned this earlier about praying for these justices that they follow their conscience, whatever their conscience dictates under the circumstance, and they are not going to be swayed by illicit political pressure. That would be tragic if that were the case. And uh, there's enough politics already. We don't want the courts to be any more politicized than they already are. So anyway, hey, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your insight and your wisdom on this. And it's great talk with you. You guys are doing a great job at Life Training Institute under Scott Klusendorf's leadership. And I know he's got a whole cadre of staff that are making the case for the uh, for the unborn and also the moral argument against abortion, the moral logic of the pro-life view. So keep up the good work, Megan. Thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, uh, Megan Allman of uh, LTI and also Summit uh, Ministries, one of the best youth training enterprises going right now. I mean, it's right at the top of the heap. And her and her husband, uh, Tripp, are, are in in um, uh, the resident there at Summit in Colorado Springs and also teaching the other places as well. Incidentally, this summer will be a lot of our staff are going to be at summits all around the country. Two week program that uh, students can go to and get discipled in the things that will strengthen and solidify their convictions. All right, let's take a break and uh, get to your calls when we come back on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter 
using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All right, Greg Kokel giving you a piece of my mind today. I actually have more to say on this particular issue uh, probably next hour. Um, I'm going to read to you a piece that was sent in to us. I think this is just a May 3rd uh, post. Uh, just is so confused. So confused. But for now let's get to our callers. And am I going to number two? Is that why it's flashing, Amy? Number two? Is that where I should go first? Okay. Uh, this is Kevin in Colorado. Kevin, welcome to the show. Greg Kokel here. Hi. Hi, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate sure. It. Yeah. Um, to do so. I have a question that's based on the, the question is about a moral dilemma, essentially. Okay. So, um, I've read some of your stuff and heard you speak about this before. So I'm afraid I probably have heard this answer before and forgot it. Okay. <laughs> so my question is, uh, if I think it's okay to lie to a person because that's the lesser evil or the greater good. And my friend who's familiar with all the same circumstances that, that I'm in disagrees with me, and he thinks it's not okay for me to lie. Are we talking about some sort of relativistic morality in this case, or, or what? Are, I'm, I'm still needing a clarification on moral sure, relativism. Sure, sure. Okay, no, it's a public. fair question. It comes up frequently, and it actually uh, represents a, a, a very common misunderstanding that people have about what moral relativism involves. Now, in your situation, the way you described it, you were very careful how you described it. In this situation, you think it's okay to lie, and your friend who is in exactly the same situation um, thinks you're mistaken and it's not okay to lie. That, That is actually an objectivist way of talking about it. All right. Um, Because what you're both trying to find out is given the same set of circumstances, what is the objectively right response? Now, in that circumstance, you can have a difference of opinion about that. But that doesn't mean you've somehow slipped into relativism. It means that as you weigh the alternatives, uh, you come to different conclusions about the objectively right response decision in that circumstance. Okay. Now that's very different than your friend saying, well, for you to lie in that circumstance that that we both face is okay for you because that's your truth. But for me, it's not okay. So you're okay on your view and I'm okay on my view. We are both right because, um, even though the circumstances are the same, because we have different subjects, and here subject, I mean individuals. It, 
there, therefore, the truth is relative to the subject, the individual involved. It is not relative to the circumstances. All right. So you guys are still talking like objectivists. Okay. Let me contrast that, though, to what people are often confused with. If people, uh, if I say, well, the right or correct moral answer depends upon the circumstance, people have often called me a relativist. That's not relativism. Right. All, I've heard you speak about that. Yes. All truth claims depend right. upon the circumstance. Is it true that Greg Kokel is broadcasting at the moment? No, is it Greg Kokel is broadcasting? And the answer is yes. Now, two hours from now, it won't be true because the circumstances change and therefore the truth value of the exact same statement will be different. Right. Okay. All truth claims depend on the circumstances. Um, subjectivism is, or relativism is when the truth claims depend upon the subjects, not the circumstance. That's the but, big difference. Okay, but I guess, what if I say, uh, I think it's it's true that it's fine, it's moral for me to lie, and he says he thinks it's true that it's not moral for me to lie. Are we still talking about, like, objectivists? Yes, of course, we, because be, okay. what you're doing is disagreeing on what the objectively correct answer is for the circumstance. That's the key there. Now, on on my view, um, and it's not just mine, I mean, a lot of people understand biblical ethics this way, is that there's a series of graded absolutes. That means uh, absolute, in this case, being something that is wrong in and of itself, all things being equal. But when you get in, as you mentioned earlier, a moral dilemma where you are faced with one of two choices, this is what a dilemma is, one of two choices, and in isolation, each choice would be bad, but you've got to choose one or the other. Well, then you're forced to choose the greater good. Now, there can only be a greater good is if there's a difference between the moral quality of the one and the moral quality of the other. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the the way greater good is to tell the truth. Some other times the greater good is to protect innocent human life. And if you have to lie to protect innocent human life, then protecting innocent human life is the right thing to do, which means the means to that end in this circumstance is also the right thing to do. Okay, the the end in this case does justify the means when you're in a moral dilemma. Okay, and we see numbers, a couple of examples of this in Scripture. Rahab lied. Right. Okay, to protect the Hebrew spies and was commended as a great woman of faith in Hebrews 11. And in James, no, both cases, you're right. James and Hebrews 11 and is on the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. She was a great, 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 whatever, add up the greats, grandmother of Jesus of Nazareth. So, so there, you know, um, it's clear that the Bible teaches that there some things are greater goods than other things. Jesus refers, tells Pilate, the one who delivered me over to you, has the greater sin. And common sense indicates that as well. So right. if I have to lie to protect a human life, 
I have an obligation not to lie. I also have an obligation to protect human life. Which one's the more weighty thing? Well, certainly protecting the lie is more weighty. I'm sorry, protecting the life is more weighty. And so I'm going to lie to protect the life. This this should not be controversial. Um, and, but, but it is with a lot of Christians who I do not think are, are thinking carefully on this. Uh, the, yep. the fact is in a fallen world, we face moral dilemmas. And again, to be clear, the moral dilemma is when you, you are forced in a circumstance where you have to make one of two choices and each of the choices, one or the other, you got to choose each of them in isolation would be a wrong choice. Now what? Now you've got to uh, now you've got to do figure out what the greater good is and do it. Now this, by the way, is a a place where you and your buddy may disagree. They might say mm-hmm. the greater good is to tell the truth. You might say the greater good is to lie and accomplish some other thing that trumps the obligation to tell the truth. And that's part of the challenge of moral decision making. But both of you in that circumstance, the way you carefully characterize it. Um, are operating from an objectivist point of view. Well, that's very well said. You have a great way with words, and I appreciate you clearing all this up. Thank you. Thank you that's, very much. That's why I make the big bucks, right? That's right. <laughs> Just kidding on that one. Okay. Uh, thank you for thank, thank you for you, your call, buddy. All right. Take yeah. care. Okay. Uh, let's uh, let's go to well, that would be Tom in Florida. Let's go to Tom. Hey, where in Florida are you? I am in Seagrove Beach, Florida, per- up in the Panhandle area. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Wait, did you say Panama Beach? No, no. Um, it's near Panama City Beach. Oh, okay. Because Panama Beach is up there too, right? Panama, yeah, City Beach. It's uh, in the Panhandle. Yeah, I. but I thought, isn't Panama Beach along the, the Gulf Coast there in the Panhandle? Because I, I visited there as a kid with my family once on a vacation. Any event, what's on your mind uh, today, Tom? Well, yeah, I'm actually calling in to um, kind of drill down. You started off with... Um, uh, with a caller a while ago on FTR asked about if it's okay to cohabitate with a male and a female. Uh-huh. And he gave you things, stuff. And I love how you have uh, Amy on board with you and stuff, because last time she has perspectives coming from a female and stuff. About That's things. right. She's given a good grin here to you and a kind of a... <laughs> Uh, she's giving you a high five with her with her eyebrows right now. So <laughs> she liked what yeah. you said. Go ahead. Anyway, so, um, and what I was thinking is, is, is where I come from, is, of course, they're coming from, they want to know from Scripture if it's okay and stuff. And I think in Scripture, when it talks about anything like that, they're not talking about, actually, whenever they talk about something like this, they're talking about um, having romantic relationships and things, not just cohabitating or living or something. It's yeah. always, it's always, you know, um, having romantic involvements and stuff. And so coming mm-hmm. from that angle and stuff, then strictly speak, but knowing stuff, but you have to watch out for um, temptations and things and putting yourself in positions where you could compromise. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm trying to remember how we nuanced this, Amy and I, together when we talked about it. But um, there is there's no question uh, in my mind that when if a if a male Christian has a female roommate, this raises eyebrows and raises questions. Okay, now as far as I can tell, there is no scriptural injunction against cohabiting. 
in that sense. Um, but there are Christian, there are principles. One says that the idea of avoiding the appearance of evil, and uh, although that could be translated uh, avoiding all forms of evil, I think that's in First Thess five. But even if that's not what this, even if that's a question, what that verse actually means. Generally, it's a wise thing not to act in such a way that people would draw the conclusion that you are doing something evil. Okay, that's one thing. Um, now, I it's not clear to me though that in today's culture, uh, especially when you do have cohabitation of of men and women, when they are not personally, romantically, or sexually involved, it's not clear that sharing the same address is going to appear to be evil to other people who are not Christians. That's one thing. Um, so, uh, however, if you are in a situation like that, it certainly can lend itself to vulnerability to sexual sin, even if when you originally set up the relationship, there was no uh, sexual or romantic attachment. It still could lead very easily to that. So this would be, uh, you know, uh, another issue where it would be unwise to put yourself in a position where you could uh, fall into sin at some time in the future. So I would yeah. say, as a wisdom consideration, this generally is not a good idea. Correct. And I and I and I, if I remember correctly, stuff right here that Billy Graham, whenever he went out traveling and stuff, that he always had somebody. Whenever he went to his hotel room or something, had somebody actually somebody else go in yeah. and make sure nobody was there or something. Right. He had a a male traveling companion, but of course nowadays right. having a male traveling companion doesn't doesn't insulate you from right. charges yeah. of sexual impropriety, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but but what he's trying to do is be wise and to be careful. Okay, and especially a person of his stature, the circumstances that he was in, a lot of people wanted to bring him down, and so consequently. Uh, he was he went way. He he worked really hard uh, to avoid any possibility of entrapment. That was what was the concern there. Right, right. Now, stand a reason we don't do that. You know, it isn't the way we. You know, we don't have people fo following each other to their rooms. I mean, that would even look weird. I would think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I I understand the sentiment that's expressed there, and I think it's an important one. But I was going to say that that in my own personal, I, no, I've had roommates in the past. I have one right now. It's always been somebody of the same sex. Like I have a male roommate right now and stuff, and we have rules and stuff like that. And um, so there's no question. There's no temptation or anything. But I go cruising a lot, and I um, uh, have a habit of of asking coworkers. If they want to come with me or something, things that the ones that think you know might want to come along and stuff. Now, as you know, it's it's uh, cruising. It you get charged uh, even if you're going solo. You have to pay for two to a room because it's two per person in a cabin. And to save expenses. Oh, I see. When you say cruising, I I, I was confused. You mean on a cruise ship. cruise ship? Okay, yeah. And that way, sometimes they double you up with a stranger, but usually it's going to be the, of the same sex, right? No, they don't do it themselves. You, what I do is I do it myself and stuff sometimes. And I've asked both males and females, but I've always, you know, I've gone with two different females and I've gone with two different males and stuff. 
Well, actually, no one because one backed out because he didn't pay in time stuff. But anyway, oh, okay. Uh, well, what, it seems to me and, a little bit odd though because when you go on a cruise ship, you got a very small room, and even right. if you have two beds, that means you're sleeping in the bed next to a member of the opposite sex, and then you have to use the bathroom and get changed and all of that. That just strikes me as very awkward. I don't know. Um, and, and that was a little different situation than when you're sharing a house together and you have yeah. your own bathroom and your own bedroom and all that. And there can really be a, a, a separation in terms of personal privacy, but I, uh, I don't see how you can do that. I, I've been on a number of cruises and, uh, even in the nicer rooms are not very big. Oh, I know. And stuff, but we've always, um, have rules up in front and stuff and, and, we're co-workers and, and so it's not like you know okay uh, but i mean i know what you're coming from and stuff that you can appearance stuff but i don't know uh, all right tom but, I, I gotta run because i got another okay. caller on board but thank you for your call and let's go to buena park oh i almost hung you up elena welcome to the hello. show hello hi how you can doing you hear me? can you hear me okay I'm yes i can okay good um my question is kind of similar a, a little bit to the last caller. Um, but I have, um, I just got off the phone with my dad with a heavy conversation. Um, he's living with his fiance. They're not married. Uh, he wants to be married. Um, and she is not there at this point. Um, they've been together and living together for seven years now, but, wow. um, and have... she's the one who's balking, not him. That's <laughs> yes. unusual. Of course, yeah. she's older, so I presume it may well, be pregnant. Well, not much older than me. No, no kids. Um, I'm, I'm my a grown, my dad's grown daughter. She's close in age to me. <laughs> um, but now, did they claim to be Christians? Though your your yes. father, they do. Okay. Yeah. Now here's the question. I, I want to. I'm short on time here, so I want to cut to yep. the chase a little more quickly. And yep. that is, I think, a question that is appropriate in circumstances like this, it's yeah. just to say, so dad, you're a Christian. So this confuses me. Yeah. How is it that you are a Christian, but you are actually living out of wedlock with yeah. your girlfriend? And that's what that God calls fornication. How does, how, how do yeah. you reconcile that and see what he says? Now, um, okay. Have you done that? Yes, today I had that heavy conversation today. Um, I finally like felt the Holy Spirit convict me, but now I just don't know how to, they're still living together. How do I, do I be around them? I have children. It, it, do I separate myself from them? Do I have a meal with them? Paul says in Corinthians, it's like, yeah. don't even eat with such a one. I, mm, so I'm really... Right, right. This is First Corinthians 5. And I, I actually yes. think this is a tough situation because yeah. Paul also says in First Corinthians 9 that those yep. who are fornicators uh, right. have no place in the kingdom of God. And uh -huh. so um, I think it's a fair conclusion to draw based on the behaviors of your father. I mean, it's just a hard thing to say, but <laughs> is that yeah. he doesn't really know the Lord. And so he's yeah. really functioning like a non-believer. Right. And it's not a good example to your children. Absolutely. But I think you're in a circumstance where you can say to your kids, you know, honeys, um, what grandpa's doing is not right. And he, yeah. he says he's doing it as a Christian, but a real Christian is not going to live this way. Right. Now, now we're going to love grandpa and, and, and whatever, but, mm -hmm. but you guys need to understand that this is not the way 
that that Christians live to Absolutely. honor God. Absolutely. And so um, so we are we're just uh, and, and make that clear to them. The assumption yes. that presumption I'd make is that they don't know the Lord, even though right. they claim to be Christians. Mm-hmm. Because their behavior belies the claims they're making to yeah. to be Christians. Jesus said, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you yeah. don't do the things that I say?" Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of stiff medicine, but I don't know any other way around it. And, and yeah, absolutely. So, I, I wouldn't avoid your father, and just because my sense isn't that he's a Christian; he's a non-Christian, and so okay. non-Christians live like non-Christians. This right. is what uh, we see happening in his life. So it's it's still okay if we have meals with them, and because uh, I don't want to cut my father off, obviously. Right. But if I have to scripturally, then uh, I will do it. No, that's called. God bless you for saying that. You have <laughs> other obligations to your father too, and that is to it's, honor right. your father. And so yes. this is yes. a competing moral goods. But yes. if it turns out that the indication is that he is not a Christian, well, then you don't have that liability. And, you know, you may talk to him about that or not. Mm -hmm. That's another prudential question that you have to answer for yourself. But it's an awkward circumstance, and I'm sure it's painful. But I think it's really important that uh, that you see things, you know, that that's the way the Lord describes how this situation pans out anyway. Elena, thank you for your call. Sorry we gave you a short trift there, but I hope we cover the bases. That's it for this hour, friends. Greg Kolkel for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.